0: Man, I tell you what. In Psalm 34, I mean, just even listening to it, I mean, you can hear a few of those coffee cup verses in there. You know, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, but you even get you get the tone of the psalm. It's obviously it's it's a worship psalm from the psalm of David, uh, and it's it's there's so much that's powerful in there. It's it's about humility. It's about coming before God. It's about you know the the separation of the ones that actually have. Surrendered to God, realizing that they can't do it on their own. And then the, the people that think that they're self sufficient, the, the evil and the wicked that think that they can do it on their own, that they've found something else that tastes better, uh, that could give them something more. And, and David is singing this song. It's actually an acrostic um, in Hebrew. So the way that the song is structured, and if you know, an acrostic, my son always still to this day will do an acrostic for like Father's Day or birthday. Uh, it'll be Derek, and then it'll be like Dummy, you know. <laughs> And you know something, you know, just along the way, you know, those, you know, it's always something or the fart, you know, Father's Day, you know, the the fart will be the first one every single time, in the acrostic. Um, sorry, I digress. This is a Hebrew acrostic, and it's for the case, you know, like so that they would remember it, that it would be a, a, a worship song, um, that the the people that um, David was speaking to in in these moments, that they would remember them. And I, you know, I was looking at this, the but the. Where this psalm originated is probably one of the most interesting things because it doesn't really make sense based on the circumstance, like what what David's saying. Now, it does, but at first glance, it doesn't. Uh, And if I was going to name, like this is the the playlist series, Psalms from the Heart. Um, If I was going to name, you know, name this, um, it would be everything is brighter in the dark. Uh, which it doesn't, that doesn't really make, make sense, but that really does make sense in light of uh, when this psalm was written that everything is brighter in the dark. So that would be the track uh, for, for Psalm 34 for today. And I was thinking about verse 5 specifically it says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. And I was thinking about all of the places in Scripture where it says that we are light, which is also a weird kind of thing for me to think think about. Because Jesus is the light. Even even John the Baptist said, "I'm not the light. The light's the one that is coming into the world. He's the one. I can't even carry his sandals. I, I, he is he is the one that's going to save the world. He is the one that's going to change things. He is the one that's going to be the redeemer. I am just the one that is preparing the way." But Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, what? We are the light of the world, you know, that, hey, don't, don't hide. I mean, you probably sang songs when you were a little kid at your VBS, you know, hide it under a bushel. No, you know, I'm going to let it shine. You're supposed to be a, a light of the world. Ephesians 5 says that we're children of light, uh, a Waco sleeper, you know, let the, the light of Christ shine on you. It is all over the landscape of scripture that, that we're supposed to be radiant, but, but the reality is, is everything is brighter, everything is more radiant in the dark, which In some ways, might not be good news for us. And I was thinking about that even from a a science standpoint or from the way that your eyes are structured standpoint. And where, like, what are the times in my life where I felt like I've seen something besides going outside and going, okay, the sun, it is the brightest thing that that is near us. Um, When do I experience, like, extreme, like, real brightness? And I remember uh, it was, uh, I looked it up, it was about 10 years ago, 2013, there was a meteor shower that was happening. We had uh, just done church. We were doing church on Sunday nights. Um, and a, a buddy of mine calls me and says, hey, um, there's a meteor shower. And he was a science geek. You know, He's, he's actually a, a storm chaser now. Has a special on Netflix, by the way. It's pretty amazing. Um, but he, uh, he called me up and said, hey, man, there's this meteor shower. I know you're into that stuff. Let's, let's go down to Iguana State Park. So um, he grabbed me. Gerald went with me. And another friend of mine named Andrew. Uh 10 years ago. Can you believe it was 10 years ago? Uh, we drove down to Tijuana State Park, and it was hot and muggy, and it, like at midnight, because that's when it's good. You got to get out, right? You got to get out of the city, get out of the city lights to see the uh, see a meteor shower. And there was really nothing happening for a while. I mean, we were out there for a good bit, uh, just kind of sitting there. And then the bugs started biting, and we were thinking about bailing. And I remember we were on that remember we were on that boardwalk. And we're just kind of standing sideways, looking up like a bunch of idiots, and. So, you know, then, then there's like the, you know, there's one. And then you're like, man, I didn't see it. You know, and it's like always somebody there that never sees it. And there's a few kind of sprinkling out, you know, d- you know, and we're like, okay, we'll, we'll wait. And then it kind of went dead. And we're like, I guess that's it. And then all of a sudden, it, I've, this is never, I've witnessed a lot of meteor showers. I mean, I usually in August, I get pretty pumped up to go, go, go check them out. Never seen anything like this. We were standing there. And a meteor flew, it seemed so close. It flew in the front of our face and it looked like somebody had lit a piece of paper on fire and balled it up really tight, poured gasoline on it and threw it in front of our face. It was that, and I'm not, I exaggerate things because I'm a pastor. This was no exaggeration. We all were like, stood there like, I mean, we couldn't believe it. There was this mixture of fear and delight and I can't believe that. I mean, we're like that thing's going to hit planet Earth and we're all gone. It's like you know, it's going to be like the 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 movie, you know, Armageddon. Uh, where's Bruce Willis when you need him? But it's like it, it was unbelievable. I mean, how bright it was, how magnificent it was. And I, I I thought about this this idea of radiance, and that everything shines brighter in the dark. And you, you think of how did I how did where did we want to witness that? Where did we have to go to the dark? We didn't wanna be anywhere where there was other light. We We needed a dark canvas to offset the glory of the meteor, right? Because everything is brighter in the dark. That's what we needed. And what's interesting about Psalm 34 is it's actually a really dark canvas. Psalm 34, amazingly bright Psalm. Taste and see that the Lord is good, that he is on the side of the brokenhearted, the people that are downtrodden, the people that are poor, the people that have decided to say, you know, I can't make it on my own. God's like, okay, I'm stepping in and I'm going to be close to you. There's a lot of brightness and good news in this psalm, but the canvas, the canvas is so dark. So if you look at and what's beautiful about some of these psalms of David is we can see the cross reference in, in uh, 2 Samuel, or this one uh, particularly is First Samuel chapter 21. Well, you can see the, the story that's happening while all this is going down. It's pretty crazy. They're like, we don't want to hear this story. And they're like, this is going to get long, and he's preaching. You know, um, I'm just kidding. Um, but the uh, the the story that's happening at the time is pretty incredible. David is he is on the he had been on the run for a while. Like he was anointed king, everything was all good, and he had killed Goliath. He had started leading Saul's army, and then there was a little bit of a problem. Because when he would roll back into town, all the ladies would run into the street. <laughs> and they would start singing this song that Saul killed a 1,000, but David killed 10,000. And Saul started to burn with jealousy. And he was David was in the courts of Saul one day. And all of a sudden, he's just sitting there playing his harp for Saul. Because Saul was kind of stressed out and had kind of something heckling him. And uh, Saul just grabs a spear and throws it at David. Lands right next to his head. And David's like, hmm, does he want to kill me? And I mean, he realized... Instantly, And next thing you know, he is, on the, he is on the run, and he's on the run for a while. His, some of his family members abandoned him. Some of his best friends abandoned him. Uh, and he, he ends up with this kind of rabble of guys, kind of the rejects of Israel. And he goes to this place called Nob where uh, they don't really know exactly what's happened yet because news, news traveled a little bit faster than the internet back then. And he gets there and kind of tells the priest, hey, we need, you know, I need some food. And he's like, why do you need food? You're David. You're the guy that's, you know, the, the, the main. He's like, well, I'm on this secret covert mission. I mean, you should read this. It's like, they should definitely make a movie out of this. He he's just kind of tells the guy, hey, we're on this covert mission. Saul sent us on. There's just a few of us. In fact, we don't have any weapons. Do you happen to have a weapon? He's like, well, I've got Goliath's sword back here. It's pretty cool. And David's like, I'll take it. Uh, and then he leaves there and he has nowhere to go. He realizes that Saul's coming after him. Saul's got the force of the army that's coming after him and wants to kill him. And so he's trying to hide, can't hide anywhere around Israel or Jerusalem. So he goes to Gath. And Gath is the home of the the Philistines, like the capital. This is where all the, like, Goliath's brothers and sisters are. These guys were giants. Uh, and these people were evil these people wanted to destroy everything that was Israel and that's where that's the th- only place he could hide out because he knew there wasn't gonna be Israelites in Gath so he goes there and somebody recognizes him as he's near where the king's court is in Gath and they're, they're, they start whispering and saying hey isn't that isn't that David isn't that the one that they sing sing songs about and the the nobles of the Philistines go to Achish the king and they say hey you will never believe this. David, yes, David, the one that's going to be the next king, the one that is the leader of Israel's army, the one that apparently Saul is now after because he's jealous of him. He's, he's, he's here. We can go get him, and we can kill him. And so Achish goes out to meet, see where, see where David is, and he's right outside the gate. And David realizes before he gets out there that he knows that they're after him. He's like, okay, they figured out who I, who I am and they're going to kill me. So immediately, he just starts acting insane. Like, he just starts going, just flopping around, screaming, you know, going crazy, starts gnawing on the gate, where, you know, the gate of the city is, "Ah!" just gnawing on the gate, foaming at the mouth, falls on the ground, starts foaming at the mouth. I mean, this is craziness. And Achish comes out, the king, and sees David, and he goes, this dude is crazy. And he literally says this in the scripture. Go, go read it. First, thing he goes, I got enough crazy people in my life. Leave this man alone and let's get out of here. And he's like, I got, and, and I feel for Achish. I get that because I got crazy people in my life too. Um, and he, he takes off and, he, and David gets away and, he, and he, he, him and his boys find a cave near Gath. And that is where the Psalm was written. You talk about a dark canvas. My man is at the end every day. He's on borrowed time. Like he's got one of the most powerful leaders in the world, Saul, after him. He's got the, and, and he's, he's got no, the, his enemy is even more of his enemy now. Like he's, it's absolutely one of the worst places David was in his life. One of the, you talk about the valley of, when he's writing Psalm 23 later, when he's, he's king, he's talking about these moments, the valley of the shadow of death. He's like, I, I, I'm, God is going to be with me in the valley of the shadow of death. This is the dark canvas that is going to offset the glory of God. But what's interesting is we read verse 5, those who look at him are radiant and their faces shall not be ashamed. What's powerful about what's happening with, with David is it's not about you're going to be radiant because you're righteous. Because there's a lot of talk in this psalm about righteousness. But the radiance is really... Structured. See if you can put, can you pull up verse five? I might've had it at the end and, and just pull up verse five on its own if you can. Or if, if you can't, just put it up there in the block. Eric's back there sweating right now. He's just like, oh gosh, why is he there? Look at that guy. Nice job. Everybody give Eric a hand. All beauty, all on its own. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall not be ashamed. That's... Those who look to him, actually, if you look at that in, uh, and you kind of break it down into the Hebrew, it's, it's toward, it's at him. So some of your translations actually might say at him. So really, it's, it's this, this radiance is more about reflection than light itself. So when, when the Bible says that you are the light of the world, actually, what's happening is the idea is that who you are as a follower of Jesus on planet Earth What we want, if we're inviting anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace, is for people to ask the question, where's that light coming from? In this darkness, where's that light coming from? When they see you, they're asking the question, where's that light coming from? You know, years ago when my kids were were younger, actually it probably wasn't that many years ago, uh, they used to play this game called Pitch Black, um, and they would that they would black out every window in our house. It was very annoying. Um, and they would shut off. All, they, and they would kick us out of the house. Or like, go on date night, go hang out somewhere, go do something, because we we got people coming over, and we're, we're playing pitch black. And basically, it's, all it was was like hide-and-go-seek, or it, it, their version of hide-and-go-seek, with, with complete Darkness absolute just blackout, like they would literally, you would walk in and, and run into something. You know when your eyes have to adjust and we'd, we'd, they'd be playing and I'd walk in and immediately, like what is happening? And You'd hit something. But most of, so many times during the game, because I've played it a few times, imagine <laughs> that, um, there's always somebody screaming, where's that light coming from? Because you can see the smallest amount of light when it's that dark. Like it just seems like a beam, like a massive chunk of light And people would be shouting, where's that light coming from? That's the question as as a follower of Jesus. I think that God would want from us when when David's saying something, it's possible for you to shine. But there's a circumstance and there's a creator God and there's a savior that is going to be the source of that light. So the question today is how does the darkness make you shine brighter. We know how it does in physics. Like we know how going down to Guana State Park makes the meteors uh, seem even more magnificent. But how does the darkness in our world make us shine? And this Psalm gives us some pretty good insight. Number one, it refines you. Look at the very beginning. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, the question I asked when when I read this is this doesn't seem like the time when you would worship. Like you're in a cave with a bunch of smelly dudes that are the rejects of Israel. Um, life used to be pretty good. I mean, if you think about who David was, he killed a lot. I mean, he, he, he had a pretty, I mean, his trajectory was going up. Like my man had been anointed king over all of Israel. That's where he was leading Saul's army. But now he is completely, every minute is a borrowed minute because death is at his door. And this is His statement. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Who, who says that? Well, it's because David over time and through the valley of the shadow of death had been refined. And he knew in a moment like this that, hey, I, I woke up today and I'm in a cave and I'm breathing. And he thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless the Lord. We, we, we're, guys, we're getting ready to, to sing a song because David had been refined by the darkness. One of the things that makes David the most, when we think about who David is, the most powerful and the most famous and the best king over Israel. The reason we say these things is because of how he was refined. He didn't just ascend to the heights as king. And you know, I was reading this from Tim Keller. He says that some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrongful patterns of life. You read the story of Jonah and the whale. That was a correction. Jonah was running from God, and God, you know, has some corrective action in the storm. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones. And we do that. We know that as parents, right? That's the case of Joseph. Joseph's whole trajectory of suffering wasn't because Joseph had done anything wrong. There was no corrective action. It was simply because God was getting Joseph in the right position. He was in a pit, he ended up in prison, he got wrongfully accused, but he ends up, because of those circumstances, because of the darkness, he ends up second command, he ends up the, you know, the guy in Egypt and ends up rescuing his brothers and sisters and the, the, what would be the tribe of Israel that would become two million people in Egypt. So that's that type of corrective action. He says, and some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone, and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. Sometimes suffering simply in the darkness is the the thing that that leads us to God, and that's where David was in this place. He knew that all he had, this was was the end of, of his world, He's like this. This may be, these may be my last. This might be my last day. But with my last day, we're gonna we're gonna write this hymn. We're gonna write this song, and we're gonna sing. And we're gonna remember it. We're gonna make it an acrostic. We're gonna remember this song. You know, it made me Beth mentioned this to me this morning, and I just thought, man, what a what a great example. My uh, my my mother and father in law are in in their seventies. My father in law is seventy nine. just eighty. Um, and right now, they're they're taking care of my father-in-law's uh older sister she's what 81 maybe 81 um and she is a character uh but she is at death's door i mean i have no problem saying that i mean she's um she's but she is we, we were we would have thought maybe three years ago that that um you know that that she she might pass away but she has just been holding on and enjoying life um but now is in that place of of suffering uh, no hospice is in. And so I've, you've got people in their late 70s taking care of an 82-year-old, uh, which doesn't seem, you know, and the, the sisters are all going and visiting and, and hanging out um, and, and helping out. But most of the time, they're on their own, and it is the valley of the shadow of death. I can't describe to you how hard it is and um, how, how long, it's like you, when you see your parents look at you like children, like, what do we do? How do we do this? How do we go another day? Um, caring for, for this person. And, and it's, the, you can see the chiseling of my father-in-law, who wasn't a perfect man. He's an amazing guy, but wasn't a perfect man. And there's this picture that, I don't know if Beth took it or one of the twins took it, um, but they're walking through the door of the, the, the cabin. And Duke, my father-in-law, is carrying his sister, Marsha. He's 79 and she's 81. And he's got her and he's cradling his sister and she's looking up at him like, thank you for doing this for me. Like the most humiliating, but the most beautiful scene you'd ever seen. There's light coming through the window and they're just, while he's taking her out the door to bring her up to the house to live with them. Um, and if you, if, if you I, I almost showed it, but I'm like, it's not time to get that emotional right now. Um, but it's, it's just a representation. And I just think about that picture and I'm like, that's when people ask the question. Where's that light coming from? Where's that light coming from? What an amazing amazing picture of how God chisels us and makes us selfless instead of selfish. And David is in the in the cave and he could be complaining right now. He could be saying this, you know, God has made all these promises to me, but it seems like I've been abandoned. It seems like I've been been left alone, but instead he, he chooses to, to worship. It reminds me of Paul and Silas when they're in prison at midnight. I mean, they, they've been beaten. They're in chains. And what do they do? They sing hymns at midnight. I mean, they worship in the dark. And that's what, what David's doing in a cave with all these guys. I wonder what these guys are thinking. Like, hey, we're going to sing this song. And they're like, dude, really? I mean, we just barely got, got away. Can we take a nap? And he's like, no, nope, you're up. I'm getting on the harp and we're jamming. Um, and it's just an amazing thing to me, and you see later in David's life how it affects him. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, one of the most incredible stories in Scripture, but David, even when he became king, he realized that the small victories God needed glory for. Like in this one, the circumstances aren't great. He might be dead tomorrow, but he's like, right now I'm alive, and I'm breathing, and I'm in a cave, and I'm gonna give God glory, and he knew every moment like that is the times you lean in and you worship God, it changes the heart and changes the mind in those moments. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you know the story of the Ark of the Covenant beyond Raiders of the Lost Ark, that might give you a little bit of information. But the, the Ark of the Covenant has this incredible story. If you kind of string together 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you can get the story of where the Ark traveled on a map. Like it went all over the place, and it was lost. If you read in 1st uh, I think 1st Samuel chapter 4. Um, they bring it to battle, and they're not supposed to, but they think if we bring the Ark of the Covenant, which is carries, if you don't know anything about the Ark, it's got the Ten Commandments in it, carried the presence of God, the very presence of God um, went with the ark. They knew that God's presence, his spirit was there and crazy things would happen around the ark. And they're like, well, let's take this thing into battle. We'll certainly beat the Philistines with this. Well, they lose and the Philistines take the ark. I mean, and when people heard the news, like people literally died. Like the, the, the high priest Eli, was a big dude was sitting on a fence. They came and told him. He literally, literally fell down. It says, he was really, really big. He fell over and he was so heavy that it killed him. And some lady immediately when she heard, she gave birth. I mean, people were really upset over losing the ark. Be careful, Abby. It's going to be fine. Um, so, yeah, we want to. Yeah, that's right. She's like, please tell another story of this ark. I'm ready to deliver this baby. Um, but the, the ark was gone. And then it was, it, it was the Philistines had it. And there's another crazy story. They, they just had all kinds of problems. They stuck it in their temple. And then their God, with their little temple God, kept falling over all the time. My like God's like, I'm not existing with this thing. And the presence of God was just every morning they would come in. And Dagon, their God, was falling over to the point where they, it, it ends up being rubble. Like they're like, we keep trying to prop up our God. And you know, the side sermon on that is if you have to prop up your God, you probably need another God. Um, anyway, they, they, they get rid of the ark because they start getting tumors and all kinds of things. They get a, like a plague of rats. They send it to another town away from them. Then that town gets tumors and rats, plague. People start getting sick wherever the ark goes. And they're like, heck with it. Send this thing back to Israel. They stick it on an ox cart and they send it back. So to make a long story short, Getting the ark back was a a big deal. And then it was gone for 20 years. It was on the outskirts of Israel because other people were kind of flippant and didn't revere the ark. They were looking in it and checking it out. They got sick. Some of them died. One guy tried to straighten the ark when they were moving it. So it ends up at this guy named Obed-Edom's house. And God blesses that guy. And David's like, there is no way. This is 20 years later. There's no way we're going to let the ark stay there. It should be in the temple. It should be in the tabernacle. So David goes and gets it but they're all nervous because all these weird things have happened over the last 20 years around the ark. But they finally figure out they've been carrying it wrong and they put the actual ceremonial poles in the holes and get the Levites to carry it like they were supposed to. So they finally figure that out and they take it from Obed-Edom's house. So they're cruising with the ark and they go six steps. It says in scripture, you can go read it. Second Samuel chapter six, they go six steps and David goes, all right, set it down. Let's have a worship service. He's like, we survived six steps. That's enough to praise God. And they do it all the way back to the tabernacle. Every six steps, they set the ark down and they, they, they like get the band out, tell Austin to come up here and lead another song. We're going to worship all the way back to Back to the tabernacle. And when he gets back, it's a famous passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, what does David do? He gets into the tabernacle. Ark gets back. Presence of God is back in the tabernacle. He strips down to his linen ephod and starts running around like a crazy man. Like, woo! I mean, just like this is, you know, worship's going off right now. And his wife, Michael, says, you need to chill out. You're embarrassing yourself in front of the slave girls. And what does he say? He says, I will be even more what? Undignified than this before my God. of the most amazing stories in scripture but it makes me think where did that get shaped and chiseled in the darkness he knew six steps that's worth it right there i've been through the fire i've been through the valley of the shadow of death i tell you what we need to be thankful we need to glorify god for every moment no day is guaranteed no health is guaranteed no success is guaranteed. It is all given by God. Every good thing that we experience is coming down to us from the Father of heavenly lights. So we want to give glory and praise to Him. It's interesting, a few uh, months ago, um, have you ever held back, like, thanking God? You're like, I don't, I, I don't even know if it's God. Like, I, I've done that. In terms of God refining me in the dark, I feel like I've gotten a, a little bit of chiseling done in, that, in the valley. Uh, but some of you know my my story, and that I've dealt with uh, some chronic pain over the years, an undiagnosed neurological disorder that started when I was about 33, uh, about 15 years ago, and you know it's been kind of on and off. I had a real rough, like the darkest time in my life, three and a half years of I, it's was the was the absolute worst, mentally, physically, just absolute just terror and pain. Um, and then it returned January of 2021, um, and it's it's been another another journey. So a couple of months ago, I'm at prayer night, which we do once a month, last Thursday of the month, and I was just sitting there, and I I sometimes don't want to say I feel better because as soon as I say it, like I'm almost scared to say it, because then everybody's like, "All right, Derek's better, and you know we're all good." Um, and I I think as soon as I say it, then I'm it's just gonna it's gonna be it's going to be bad. Or maybe it's just in my head or, you know, should I thank God or tell people on, cause people, I've been in charismatic churches where people are like, I'm healed. And I'm like, that dude ain't healed. He's still sick. You know, he's, he's still, it's still happening. Like that whole idea of name it, claim it, just claim that you're healed and you're going to be healed. That word of faith type stuff. I'm kind of cynical about it, but I was in prayer night and I was just like, I felt like God was telling me, you know, like the, the spirit was on me. And I'm like, I need to tell this group, this small group of people, there's probably 15 people in there, that I feel better. Like God has this, and it's the only reason that good things happen is because God allows them and God puts them in my life. And I've had relief. And even if it's just for a moment, even it had been for the last week or so, even if it's just for a week to have relief, I got to give glory to God. So I told everybody in the room, I just said, hey, I feel better. And I'll tell you what, right now, I feel better. I mean, it's glory to God, right? We should give Him praise, we should worship Him, right? It's those moments where you realize God God shapes you and refines you when you're in the dark. And, And those are the times, those are the people that you look at when they're going through it and you're like, where's that light coming from? Where's that light coming from? You know what else happens in the dark? Uh, we don't like it, but it happens. Verse two, it says, my soul makes, makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. It, it, it humbles you. The darkness, there's nothing like the darkness to humble you. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Verse seven, it says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, who have gotten to the place where they realize I've got nothing else but him, and he delivers them. There's this whole section in this passage where David's making certain he wants the people that have lived their lives in the simplest place and in the place where they revere God and they, and they are not boasting. The people that have not walked around feeling like they're self-sufficient with their chest poked out, like they've got it all figured out, like they know what the deal is. But the people are like, look, I, I know that I need God and I know that he's worthy to be revered and to be glorified. He said, I, I wanna let you know that there's good news because God, he sits on the side of the humble. That's where he resides. In fact, if you look at scripture, there's probably, there's a, there's a handful of things that you see unbelievably strong themes for that God exalts the humble. And the, the exalted, guess what's gonna happen to them? They will be humbled. So honor in the kingdom of God doesn't come from your resume doesn't come from what you do, doesn't come from how cool you are, how good you are at something, how how you've climbed the, the ladder of success. That's not where honor comes in the kingdom of God. Honor in the kingdom of God comes from humility. In fact, there's nothing that shines brighter in a human being than humility. It is one of the characteristics that when you see it, and there's nothing that will bring you down and nothing more that gets more icky than pride. I mean, you ever been around a one-upper? So, I mean, just, that's their deal. It's like you say something, and they, they've done a little bit. Saturday Night Live has one of the best sketches of all time of one-upper. It's just hysterical. But just the idea of, you know, I've gone, you know, we went to Colorado on vacation. We well, went to Paris. It's really great. We went to Paris. We were there for, you were there for a week. We were there for three. Um, and it's just a funny, funny sketch. But there's nothing more, more disgusting than pride it is it's the root of sin it's 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 why we get in that 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 crazy climb of success why we compete with other people um, when we walk into a party like who's got what on who looks better than who who's got the better life who's got the better car who's got the nicer house all of that is rooted in in pride but isn't it great to be free from that in that place of true not not like false humility like no 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 you go first you go you do it it's fine i've got mine but the real actual gospel humility there's something powerful about it there's something that that shines but we see that theme all through scripture. Matthew 23, it says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. First Peter says it. James 4 says it. Luke 14 says it. Proverbs 29, Isaiah 14, Philippians chapter 2. But you look at David. David walked through both scales, the ascent and then the descent, and then ascending again. And in that place, he found humility. Previously, David killed a lion and a bear with his hands. He was an, He was anointed king out of all of his brothers who were warriors. Killed a giant and paraded his head around Jerusalem. Became a mighty warrior. His best friend was a prince. Songs were written about him. And in this place, the backdrop of Psalm 34, he was hungry. He didn't have any weapons. His friends had abandoned him or tried to kill him. He was traveling with the rejects from Israel. His only hope is in gath with his enemy, the Philistines. And he had to act like a crazy, insane man and humiliate himself to survive. Humility comes. And what's interesting is when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, do you know what ceases to matter? When you're walking in darkness, you know what, you know what doesn't matter anymore? Your resume. It just doesn't. The, the, the darkness, the valley of the shadow of death takes all of the things that you might have stacked on your shoulders. The, the banners, the ribbons, the things that make you, you know, the cool person that you are. When you're walking through it, you don't care about those things. You have, you have no attachment to them. Tim Keller says, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. That's humility. When you get to that place, and I, I, I do remember that being the chiseling of my life back in 2005, 2006, 2007. 2008, when, when you fear what's going to happen to you in the next year, like your health, nothing matters. Like money, money ceases to matter. Your resume, like how, how cool you are, doesn't matter. All you want is your health back. When you're in chronic pain, all you want is your health back. And it drove me to that place of, I don't even know where to go. I, at first, I was mad. I, pro, I was more stubborn. The chiseling took a lot longer with me. Y'all probably would have you know taken a year, but three and a half years is where I was, where I finally woke up and realized, you know what? I'm going to cling to Jesus with everything that I have. If I've got one day left, then I'm, that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to be hanging on to him. And I've, I've told this story before. It's like I, I finally would wake up in pain, you know, at like three or four in the morning, sweating, and didn't want to like weep and cry in bed next to my wife. So I would go out into the living room and just lay on the ground on my back. And eventually, um, I don't even remember how many, you know, which year it was that that I started doing. I grabbed this, this message Bible and just started reading through the Psalms. And I would just, I soaked the pages because I I was like, this is, this is where I am. You know, I flood my bed with tears all day long. God, where are you? I need you. And I needed to read those things. God needed to put those songs, that playlist, in my mouth. So I, I, would, I would read those. And I think I read through the Psalms probably in that, that little yellow message Bible three, three times. All the way through. And God started to open up the, the reality that the whole time as he was stripping all the stuff that I thought mattered because my identity was completely, like I I couldn't do the things that made me who I was because of pain. And because of fear, because of anxiety, I was completely self-absorbed. And in that place, at the bottom of the darkest, darkest, darkest pit, I found out that Jesus was down there. He, he He was there with me, speaking to me telling me, you know what, you don't care about anything, and that's, what I, I, that's where I wanted you. I didn't want you to care about your job, your success. I didn't want you to care about money. I didn't even want you to care about ministry, what your future was, whether you were going to be a missionary. I wanted all that off the table, but now we're going to take your health off the table. We're going to take your mortality off the table, and you're going to be fearless, because that's what you're going to need. That's what you're going to need. Where I'm going to send you, you're going to need to be fearless. And that took... That was the most humbling journey, and the only place it could happen is in the dark. And I would never want to go back there. And January of twenty twenty one freaked me out because I really didn't want to go back there. But maybe I still need a little bit more chiseling, but I would never trade it for anything. For what it's what it's done in me, what it's done in my family, what it's formed, what it's done for us as a church. The dark changes things, and only God can take darkness and redeem it lastly number three the the darkness in a strange way it rescues you verse 18 it says the lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit many are the afflictions of the righteous but the lord delivers him out of them all he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken He rescues you. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. It's interesting. David is saying, it's good news. If you're poor, if, if, if you're brokenhearted, I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I, I want to challenge you. I want to tell you that the good news is if we're in the worst place, if we're in a place where salvation is needed, then salvation is coming. The people that think that they can do it on their own, that they don't think that they need salvation, they think they've got it done, God look read Luke chapter 15 Jesus says the same thing to the Pharisees those of you that think you're all right i didn't come for you you know the doctor doesn't come for the well he comes for the sick so if you're in the darkness if you're in a you're in a tough place and if you're in a place of salvation the dark is where rescue comes cuz god draws near to the brokenhearted so i don't know how you came in today or what your story is or what you're walking through i know there's people walking through Cancer in here. I know there's people that are walking through some undiagnosed stuff in here. And I get that. There's people walking through divorce, people on the other side of divorce. There's people with broken hearts in here. The good news is Jesus is here right now because he draws close to the brokenhearted. He draws close to the brokenhearted. And those salvation stories or what make that powerful? Because there's a lot of people in here that your heart was broken, and God came in and He rescued you. Some of the some there's some of you in here I know I I cannot believe you're a Christian, and I don't say that because of the way you act. I know that's funny. I should say that a different way. But it's true. Like you you I remember having conversations with some of you ten years ago, and you you're like you would be the like just you you. Didn't dig it. It wasn't your jam, man. And just watching some of you hit a valley. Like I'm talking about brokenness times 10. And out of that valley of the shadow of death, God rescued you. And now you've got this salvation story. And people are asking you the question, where in the world does that light come from? Because I want some of that. I want want to be a part of some of that. You see, the, the gospel... The salvation story, you know, often we, we want God to eject us out of the darkness, right? But the gospel story isn't, you know, all of a sudden salvation comes when we go up, right? Salvation story is when he comes down. God doesn't eject us out of the darkness. God comes down into our darkness and walks us through the darkness, I mean, the gospel says that Jesus didn't beckon us up. Like, can you be good enough to get up this ladder of holiness to find me? Can you get up here? Can you make your way out of that valley on your own? Hey, you down there in the pit where you can't save yourself. No, he stepped down. Philippians 2 says he stepped down. Didn't only only come down, but he became like one of us. Human in every way drop down into your pit. And in my pit, that's, that's where I found Jesus. I didn't find him in, I mean, this is hard for a preacher to say, I didn't find him in church. I found him in my pit because he comes down to where we are in the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our darkness. And he says, I'm going I'm to shine so brightly on you that you're going to be radiant in your darkness and in your brokenness. Hey, without me, you're not going to shine. You're not going to shine. But with me, when you turn towards me, when you look towards me, you're going to shine. You're gonna, people are going to be asking the question, where in the world did that light come from? And you're going to be able to tell them, I extol the Lord. I praise his name. I bless his name. Even in this cave, look over here. You'll be beckoning people. Taste and see. Hey, I love that, that he, he asks. He says, taste and see. If you don't trust me, get in there. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, we're, we're that way with food, aren't we? Take people to a restaurant. Like, you don't believe me? You say you don't like sushi, but you haven't been to Oku. It's pretty good. <laughs> Taste and see. The Lord is good. These salvation stories and the way that God works, the Bible, the very Bible is not you going up out of trouble, but Him coming down into our trouble. And this passage Near the end in verse 20, it says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And I'll I'll, I'll end here, I've gone too long anyway. That's a a statement, it seems kind of out of place. In verse 20, he keeps all his bones and not one of them broken. David's speaking of himself, he's like, hey, at the end of the day, I might be downtrodden, I might be in this cave, I might be dead tomorrow, but I can tell you right now, the promise that God's given me is that none of our bones will be broken. And it's something that the Israelites, that those people would know, because in Exodus, I mean, years before, Exodus chapter 12, that was a, a command of the sacrificial lamb was, hey, the, the bone shouldn't be broken. And they didn't quite understand, but they knew, because in Levitical law, it told them, and in Deuteronomy, it told them that, hey, this is God's guarantee that, that this isn't the end. That if the bones aren't broken, then you can come back from this. Then you can respond from this. And David's just making the statement, has no idea that it's prophetic, speaking of who Jesus would be and that his bones wouldn't be broken. But he's just saying, hey guys, our bones aren't broken. We can come back from this. This isn't the end. That was that representation. But Psalm 34 is actually a prophecy of, of Jesus, because when Jesus died on the cross, we see in the prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. And that was pretty much traditional that the people that were on the cross, their bones would be broken to hurry their death because they couldn't hold themselves up and that would make their lungs collapse when they could no longer hold themselves up and they would asphyxiate and die. So the two thieves that were crucified next to Jesus, they broke their legs and they died and then they got to Jesus and they're like, I think he's already dead. We don't need to break his legs and they pierced his side instead to check. In the Gospel of John, it says this happened to fulfill the prophecy that we all know that none of his bones will be broken. But it also is amplifying the fact that this is not the end. And I just want to say to you that the cross of Jesus Christ, that the empty grave are amplifying today to you and your circumstance and your darkness and your brokenness and your lostness wherever you are that this is not the end of your story.